0: progress you have to demonstrate what you've delivered but if you do it in a way of here's the thing I delivered here was the impact it's not based on me going oh my god I'm so amazing it's just that was the thing I did and that was the thing that people said about the thing that I did and then it's their fact it's not me kind of making my own judgment so that's something that I just think about it's not bragging if it's fact just share the facts and other people can make their judgments on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth. Through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements, we create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar Culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of, of Everyday Leadership, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Kim Wiley. She is Global Director of People Development and Change at Barfit. spent a decade plus at Google doing various roles. She's worked at Hans Reuters. She's a board director at Temporal. She is a guest lecturer, um, published in numerous magazines. She's been regarded as one of the most influential HR directors, D&I leader as well. So my absolute pleasure just to spend some time talking to you, Kim. How are you doing?
0: I'm not too bad.
1: Nice to see you. It's definitely great to see you as well. Mm. And um, one thing I would like to do is go way back with my guests, especially with you and your journey. Um, I wanted to go back to like New Zealand time,
0: Probably back.
1: Yeah, <laughs> way, way back. And you studied law and business. Yeah, commercial uh, law and, and marketing,
0: etc.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when I look at that journey to where you're right now, it's obviously <laughs> a, it's a lot of difference. But I have to go a bit further back than that. Like. When you were younger what were you what were your intentions what did you want to do? Mm,
0: that is a very good question. My intentions when I was younger was to represent New Zealand in the Olympics for equestrian. That was the dream. Wow. Um, which you probably didn't see obviously any reference of that actually. <laughs> <laughs> you're very passionate about well sorry still am actually. But I guess as you know a lot of kids when you're you're growing up the sport that you do and you have so much passion for it that the desire is to represent your country. So that was the early trend. Not hugely realistic. I mean, I did work very hard and I got into some of the development squads and things, but it's always going to be tough to be selected to be, you know, one of the, one of the elite athletes in any sport. So I did it. I competed at a reasonably high level, but I don't think it was ever going to earn enough money to pay the rent. To be honest, it was just costing a whole lot. My dad convinced me I probably need to do something as well as ride horses. And the other thing I was really quite passionate about was fashion design. And so I used to design a lot of my own clothes and you know, got, got, I think I got the top of my class in my fashion design studies at school. I did think at one point I wanted to go down that, that route and go to university and study design. Again, I think the reality was I was probably not ever going to be good enough to do anything groundbreaking in that space, but it was, so it was kind of a hobby. But anyway, I ended up doing something a little bit more generalist which started out as being marketing and economics etc at a business degree and then I picked up commercial law as a second major whilst I was at university. I classify as a squiggly a squiggly journey.
1: (laughs) I think one of the great things I can say is that you pursued all your different passions. You tried horse riding it didn't work out but you did it. You tried fashion Interesting. Enough, I'm going to say that worked out because you, you're working at you're working at Firefetch now, which is one of the, what, the biggest luxury fashion brands in, in the world right now. So even yeah. though it took a while, you definitely got there.
0: I got there. Exactly. Exactly. It, yeah. That was actually something that has been quite nice to me. It kind of feels like I've gone full loop and come back to something that I was actually originally quite passionate about when I started out and. Thinking about what I want to do with my life, although obviously I am not designing clothes, I'm close to people, I'm connecting to people who are. But
1: do you ever still get tempted to actually, like, you know, what I wonder if I could still do this?
0: Mm, no, I have not been tempted to do that. I think I know what probably my limitations are there, but I do appreciate the people who've got the, the skills to do that as, as they work, and I feel lucky to. Be connected to that world, but I'm very aware that I am not nearly as talented as as I need to be to do anything meaningful in that space.
1: So, how did that journey then go from university studying to going into training where you worked at, I guess, Thomas Arotas and Accord?
0: By accident, I guess, as a lot of things probably in my career have been, but, well, not by accident, I shouldn't say that, but it wasn't necessarily an intentional move, but I started off after getting into the commercial doing the commercial law at university that kind of was my foot in the door to connect with thompson reuters and i was actually doing kind of first line tech support for them initially and helping the lawyers and accountants etc who were clients of thompson reuters to deploy and make use of the digital products at that time, which was CDs and the internet was just starting, but it was kind of helping people with CDs and happened to be working in the operations team who, and my manager at the time also led the training team. And after I'd been there for a while, she's like, you know, I've got this, you know, you're good with the clients on the phone. I got a role in the training team. I think you should apply for it, which completely blew my mind because I was very, very, very shy and if you'd said to me back then, one day you'll be able to stand in front of a room and and train people or speak to them or do a presentation, I would have told you you were bonkers anyway. this woman had a she obviously saw something in me that I wasn't able to see on myself and convinced me to apply for this role and um And then I got the role and then it was like. Now I have to kind of pretend that I can do this stuff and just the whole fake it to you make it piece was definitely a cool mantra. And so that was my foot into the door to that kind of the training world. And yeah, as you my career has bounced in and out of doing that type of work since then. But big thanks to Patricia, who was my boss back then and encouraged me to give that that type of work a go.
1: What do you think has been the the biggest shift in the way that I guess you've grown in confidence, like you said, right now you speak, you speak at conferences, you do what you do at work, you trained, you worked in great, brilliant organizations all around the world. But previously, you were very shy, and the thought of doing public speaking, used to scare you see, absolutely
0: scary. Yeah, what was the biggest change? I guess it's that faking it till you make it, and having someone believe that you can do it. Going, well, I trust this woman; she's got, I think she's got good judgment. If she can see some potential, then, you know, I don't want to let her down. And then I guess it's just over time realizing, you know, dies from public speaking, right? And I think you realize as well that people in an audience, they typically want the person who's speaking, they want them to succeed. You want people to do well when they're on a stage. The more you feel like you can kind of just show up a bit as yourself and people and people give feedback and say, actually, that was really interesting. Like okay, what can kind of do. It. It's so nerve wracking. I think that's one of the something that most of us can appreciate how nerve wracking it is to speak in front of people. And I, you know, I, you still get the nerves, but I think after practice, over time, it becomes less terrifying.
1: Are you a uh, over preparer, so you plan out every single thing you're going to say, or you, no. uh, I show up and I do?
0: I show up and I do. <laughs> I used to prepare more, but actually, I've got to the point now where. I think if you're speaking about stuff you don't know about, you have to prepare, right? But I would try not to speak about stuff I don't know about and point people, you know, that people want an expert on a subject and it's not my subject, suggest that they go and speak to someone else. And I think when you're an expert on a subject, I actually find preparing too much makes me more nervous and makes me less natural because I start thinking, oh, I didn't say that one thing, or I didn't say that one thing. Whereas if You had no intentions of saying anything you can't get it wrong and i guess this is about you know doing conversations like this with no prep and an example of that but also i prefer when i hear people who are just very conversational and authentic and you can tell when someone's reading a script and i think that's less engaging when you're in the audience
1: yeah i can definitely resonate with that i'm i'm exactly the same when i first started speaking i tried to do a preparation yeah like five minutes in I was like hey, this is not me I can't I can't either I just show up and I talk about what I know and that's yeah. where the connection happens isn't that authenticity you yeah. talked about people can recognize in the way that you talk to them and the way that you approach things
0: Yeah no definitely but it also takes a certain amount of confidence to feel okay with doing that it does become easier I and mean, when you know you've also the more you do it and you you the more you know what you stand for and what your opinions are on certain things it becomes easier to be able to articulate them
1: when you think about confidence and think about your growth, I go mm-hmm. back to your time, especially at, at Google, yeah. you you worked in a number of different roles from going to training to then I think it was M&A that you worked in and then like cloud and leading that on, on a global scale. I think yeah. I remember you say one time, I think when you were at Google, you started out, you were 3,000 employees by the time you left, it was like yeah, 100, 100K plus. Yeah. So you were in that period of massive, massive oh, growth.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel incredibly privileged to have been part of that and learned so much from that experience at Google and was able to gain experience with lots of different teams, lots of different managers, different types of work. Just, yeah, a very valuable experience that I think has shaped, I guess, how I would think about leadership, etc. cetera, now.
1: Driving change and, and transformation is something that you talk a lot around. Yeah. And um, I was interested to learn about your personal experiences how do you handle change
0: that is a very good question how do i change handle change so i think for me one of the things that has been really helpful for me in terms of understanding change is learning about the neuroscience of change which is something i got into back i can not remember when it was but when i was leading a, a small change management team at google and I went to a conference, I heard someone speak about the neuroscience of change. And it was just kind of this whole light bulb moment for me. And then it really inspired me to get into studying and reading, et cetera. And I think, you know, we're all walking around with brains, most of us walk around with brains, you know, with brains on, on our heads and our and our brains, actually, when you understand a little bit more about them, it helps you to understand why change is so difficult and I think with that knowledge, it doesn't necessarily make you know change is still hard, but when you know what's going on in the human brain, you can create the conditions either for yourself or for others that help to sort of mitigate some of the things that we're fighting against because essentially change represents a threat to our brains, our brains want to protect us, that's their one job is keeping us alive, and change represents a potential threat, and we need to you know if you if you can understand that and you can go, okay. I'm feeling this way because this is what's happening in my brain. What can I do to navigate that? So it's kind of the coaching yourself through it. But yeah, I think the, the challenge we deal with our brains is that they are still, they haven't really evolved at the same pace as society. So they still operate pretty much in the same way as when we were roaming the plains and we were running away from lions or whatever it was that we were running away from. But now these the triggers in our modern lifestyle cause our brain to react in the same way as if we were being chased by something. And so they're kind of over on on threat and uncertainty. But when you understand that, you go, okay, I'm feeling like this because of my brain. What can I do to kind of ground myself and focus on what I do need to do, etc." I think, for me, that's been really helpful.
1: And then how do you then I guess cascade that to other people. If I go back to the some of the work I'm sure you, when you did at Google, which is working with a lot of B2B companies, trying to get them involved in the right work, but actually you yeah, them on onboarded to try new technology, especially way back in the day before hybrid working came out when you were talking about Google Hangouts and working remotely and working worldwide and connecting your team. I'm sure you would faced a lot of leaders and organizations like, we don't want to do that. And it was that initial fear. So how did you go about, I guess, Convincing and helping people to understand that change, yes, it's scary, but this is also good for you. It's going to help you grow and improve your organization, your productivity, and innovation, and all those kind of things.
0: There's two things. I think explaining to people change is hard because of our brains and just going, it's okay to feel a bit worried about this. That's normal, means you're human, and kind of acknowledging that. You know, there's lots of different change management models, but one of the things that I would often refer to as what I would call the head, heart, feet model. And you need to engage with people, head, heart, and feet, in order to get them to really understand, appreciate, and move forward with change. So what I mean by head, heart, feet, head is making sure that people understand the rationale. What's the logic behind doing this? How will this change positively impact the organization or the team or the business or help us achieve our mission or our vision or whatever the big picture stuff is like what's the logic behind working in a different way how is that going to help us with something else we care about the heart piece is that is how do you build an emotional connection with people about the change how do you encourage them to want that thing that change to be successful this is the hard piece of course the emotional piece is always a hard part But there's always, I think there's broadly speaking, there's there's lots of ways you can broadly speaking, kind of two main things you can do. You can help people identify what's in it for them. If you unpick things like what's in it for them short term, medium term, long term, if they were to operate in this, in, in this new reality. And then the other way is getting people contributing. You know, one of the things that we all care about is having to have some sort of autonomy and have some sort of impact and what goes on in our lives and if you can involve people in the project they feel like it's their project because it is their project and they can help shape kind of their own destiny this changes much harder when it's kind of done to you but if it's part of something you're involved in and you're able to contribute to it it can be a great way of helping people to have that emotional connection if it's our project we want it to be successful kind of ties back to um it's a bit of an ego thing there as well we want the thing we want the projects with our names on them to be successful right and then the third piece the feet which is like how do you help people to take those first steps and make progress that's the behavior change that's really about putting in place the support giving them the knowledge and the ability the training the skills in order to operate successfully in the new world is one of the fears we have as adults, so it shows up less often in children, but we we we're scared of looking a bit silly and we're scared of looking like we don't know what we're doing, right, particularly if our personal brand has been has evolved to, because we're an expert in operating in the old way of doing things, if that's taken away, what does that mean for us and our personal brand so if you can create that environment where people can get the training you can help them become the expert in the new way, and the new way of working, then that helps with that so I think head, heart, feet is a very good sort of checklist of, right, if you are wanting to inspire behavior changing people, can you work through that and, and kind of tickle those three off? And if you can, you're much more likely to be successful than if you're just doing the head bit and then maybe a bit of feet or you're just doing bits of one or, or another.
1: Do you need to have a particular personality or way of looking at the world to be able to embrace the head, heart, feet model that you just talked about? The reason why I ask that is there are times when you have Leaders who, for example, see emotions as touchy-feely. And that's why you get that separation between tech being just built out <laughs> without any emotions in it. But you got that whole environment. I just talked about around Clayton, in that inclusive environment where it's about us. We're doing this for us as a team. So all those different elements, which are not necessarily natural for a lot of leaders. So how do you start to change or imbibe that into people who might not naturally have that way of looking at the world?
0: So this is when being able to talk about it from a neuroscience perspective is powerful because it takes the concept of emotions from a touchy-feely, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, you know, it's not real stuff. You can actually talk about it in terms of the science and this is how brains operate. And if you are aware of that, then we can do something about it. So that for me was the, the kind of the real turning point about talking about the emotional connection and, and things, talking about it from a, a neuroscience perspective. This is what's going on in the brain. This is why it's going to cause you problems. Here's what to do about it. And it becomes less fluffy and more, you know, you can't argue with science, right? Like, and, <laughs> and become, <You> try. <laughs> I mean, you can try, of course. Um, that's a different, that's probably a different <laughs> But it becomes less of a. It's a fluffy thing. It's like no. This is how human brains are. Why this is how they operate. This is why this is going to cause you problems. Here's what to do about it, and and then you can kind of navigate it that way. That's how I found it. It, it worked because you're right. That's the that's the biggest challenge. That was the biggest challenge, at least, not the m- work that I did at Google with some our cloud customers.
1: Do you ever get used to dealing with change and uncertainty and ambiguity?
0: I think there's some people who. Have, who are probably slightly less triggered by change and uncertainty than others. I think to some extent is something that can be a trigger for all of us, but some people have the different thresholds about how much change and uncertainty that they like being around. And to link actually to one of the things that we've put in place as part of our hiring mechanism at Farfetch was what we will find is Farfetch hypergrowth, loads of change going on. And it's the same at Google as well. So for me, it doesn't feel like any – it just feels like a normal organization. But I think it, it is like they, there is a lot of change going on in both of them. It's so a go far model, and there's good for growth, good for far fetching, good for the role. So at the, at the, at the hiring point, and also we're doing performance reviews, we would do these good for growth interviews or performance assessments, which is about how do you show up in ambiguity? How do you navigate change? what we were finding is we were bringing people into the business who couldn't cope with that. And so they would come in, and go, Oh, this is a bit much, and then they'd step out again. Whereas now we've kind of incorporated that mechanism up front to bring people in who do have a high tolerance and a, you know, can thrive in that environment. So some people do, you know, enjoy being in that environment and some people don't. But we all do all have sensitivity to uncertainty for sure.
1: And if you're in that environment consistently, and like you said you worked it in Google, you've done it, you're doing that at Farfetch now, so you're very much used to it. But then it's also very easy to go down the opposite spectrum of that and can quite easily lead to burnout. So how do you make sure that you're still looking after your people yourself as an individual, and looking after your people as well, to ensure that while they're navigating that uncertain, complexity, and, and constant change that's happening around them? Also looking after themselves and they don't go down that burnout route.
0: Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that there is a direct correlation for change to burnout with everyone. I think for some people, that change is what fills the tank, because the excitement and the energy and trying new things. Like I think for some people, a lot of change is the place that they want to be. For some people, probably less so. Um, I guess to answer your point about managing or kind of creating the conditions where burnout is not something that people have to deal with. That knowing yourself, if you are someone who is triggered by a lot of uncertainty, then look for ways to create certainty, as much certainty in your life. If you are someone who is is really keen on having a lot of autonomy and if that's something really important to you, you kind of look for roles or companies and, and do work that there's a lot of autonomy. There's a model called the SCARF model which is, came from David Brock from the Neuro Leadership Institute. We do a lot of work with them at Farfetch around some sort of the inclusion work we do and neuroscience of, of leadership. And the principles are that people need status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And each of us need all of those things, but there's kind of a sliding scale of how much we need each one of those things. You've got a sense for yourself, I know I don't need that much certainty, but I do need fairness, Fairness for me is really important, for example. So it's about, I guess, making sure that the people around me know that it's important to me and looking for ways that I can bring fairness make sure that fairness is a big part of how I show up and how I lead and, and the conditions that I operate in. So I guess that's one angle of looking at it. But it is, I think it is about knowing yourself. The other thing, just something I've learned over the years about myself, and actually this is something, that, you know, at Google and I, Really push myself probably a little bit too hard as a lot of us do kind of slightly earlier in our careers and you learn what the limits are. But for me, what I've learned from that is that exercise is fundamental to my mental health. I've learned that now that's part. It's a non-negotiable part of every day because I know that if I get up and I exercise, it just it helps me be able to cope with things. And I notice if I don't exercise mentally i find it harder to process stuff i think that's i guess a personal thing for me as an organization putting in place you know some for some people it's going to be meditation and for some people it's going to be spending time with family i think people are, i think it's important for us to all know what are the stuff that we need ourselves and we have to take responsibility for finding it and for prioritizing it and it is an organizations we can put in place programs and tools etc but then people need to kind of take advantage of it i guess
1: and that approach actually is, speaks to the fact that it's down to you as the individual. You need to be able to understand and know your own, your own rhythms. I'm very much like you where I wake up early in the morning to exercise because that's part of the thing that centers me, grounds me to start my day. If I don't do it, I know it's the difference. And other people, it's like, like you said, it might be meditation or things, but you, you need to be able to know, okay, this is what I want to do or try. And therefore I can commit that request into work. And then they can. If they do that, great. If they don't, at least I know that I've tried, but I know I understand myself because it's not always down to the organizations. It's down to the individual to then speak up. However, the one thing I'm going to add to that then is when you talk about the scarf model in particular, one of the things that make it work well or to, to go through those is having that psychological safety. If you don't have that created, it's very hard to apply some of those elements of the scarf model. So have you been, or shall I say how, intentional has with what you do been around creating a culture where you do have that psychological safety.
0: It's very intentional, actually. And, you know, we've actually at Google, we did a lot of work around psychological safety. There was a project back in 2014 called Project Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. I remember it. So that was, I guess that was my first insight into what psychological safety was, and luckily at Google, when we realized that that was a fundamental component of a high performing team, there was a big focus on it. So we all got, you know, and I was earlier in my career then, but got the opportunity to learn what it is, what it isn't, and how to create the conditions within a team for psychological safety. And it's something that at Google, we were very intentional training managers doing team workshops to help people understand how to create those conditions. And we're doing similar work. at Farfetch actually hosted a session with some of our leaders last week on this exact topic around how can you create psychological safety? Number one, actually, firstly, why would you want to? Like, Why is it important? There's no point, you know, we're doing this because we want to create the conditions for people to show up as their true authentic selves, to not be scared of judgment or retribution based on the, the, the things that they bring to the group doesn't mean you're all, you know, holding hands and singing songs together and not arguing because that's, you know, that's also not constructive. But it's about knowing if I challenge you, will you challenge me or I make some, you know, crazy idea for some wild innovation that I'm not going to be laughed out of the room or, or you know, it's not going to be lost and damaged. I and mean, when you've got that psychological safety and also when you incorporate the scarf components as well and people know actually. I, I know that certain people really care about fairness. I know certain people really care about autonomy and you can navigate that as a group and provide the support and guidance for each other based on what each person kind of needs. At
1: the stage of your career right now with the my experience that you've, you've had, do you still get those times where you feel like, oh, I'm not sure I can say that? Or do you just feel confident? Like, I'm just going to say what's on my mind. I'm just going to speak my truth and, and, and go with it.
0: I still do less frequently now than probably than earlier in my career. But I think going back to this desperate introvert, desperately shy person, the thought of speaking up, and I've navigated I'm much less like that, but there's still moments where I, where I feel like, oh my gosh, I can't say that. And that's not necessarily because of the conditions that I'm in, but it's because I sometimes revert back to, you know, depending on what else is going on in the world and, and life, you can revert back to some of those things. But less less so now than I used to, for sure.
1: Now we're in a world where happy to working is a thing, and a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders are, are navigating that. When you think back to the way things are now. And then think back to how what you were talking about probably, what, five, six, seven years ago. Do you just smile at yourself thinking, this is what I was talking about. This is the kind of environments that I was trying to create, which I'm sure you got some resistance to.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because obviously COVID has really just expedited a lot of the work that we at Google, we kind of believed in. And that was the philosophy behind the tools we were selling, et cetera, is like to create the conditions for people to work anywhere, anytime, any device, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, sometimes it causes a little bit of a crisis to drive behavior change more quickly. And I think what is interesting now is, you know, we've proven, organizations have proven that you don't physically need people in an office five days a week in order to be productive or in order to innovate, et cetera. But the piece, and if I kind of link a little bit to The work that Temporal does, which is this company that I did some board advisory, I think the the timing for the offering that they have is, I mean, it just feels like just the right time because what you know a lot of organisations either more recently or even you know previously have kind of bought into this concept of collaboration, connection, etc., but haven't really had a mechanism to measure what it is that this collaboration is bringing and how can they tell if it's working and how they can, how can they tell if people are really connected and collaborating and what's going on with people within the organization. So the temporal kind of the tools and technology they built, I think is, is going to be really powerful to help organizations go, right. We, we've got Slack, we've got workplace, we've got, you know, the Google tools What's actually going on. Because you can actually start to look at when you look at the organizational network analysis, you can start noticing outliers—people who are not connected—and then or people who are over-connected and that's potentially when the burnout piece can come into play. And got all of this—you know, organizations got so much data now. But how can they actually mine the data they've got to make really informed decisions? So, an interesting work happening there.
1: How'd you get involved with um, temporal?
0: That's Google Connections. Yeah, Google Connection. So there's this quite a big Google component to to that. So again, it's just that, you know, the work we, we did back in the cloud team was we're selling the promise of collaboration and connection and et cetera. But one of the questions we always used to get is like, well, how can I measure the ROI of this? How do I know what's actually going on? How do I know if people are really collaborating? Because there's no analytics on these tools or there is kind of some very basic analytics. And so that was kind of, a bit of the brainchild of that. Very exciting to be involved with that. I
1: was looking at the work that they do in that interpretation piece that you talked about, which is so important. Then the question that came up for me is, um, if you don't have any interpretation for your data, which you don't always do, if you're not using Temporal, or using the different platform, for example, how can you still communicate or get across your points around why it's important to be able to cater and look after your people and your team in ways that are new, shall I say, to a lot of people or organizations. One thing you talked about earlier on was it might be meditation, for example, that people want to do to avoid burnout stress. Mention meditation right now. yes, it's all right. I mentioned meditation probably 18 months ago. Most organizations be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> why would do such a thing? I'm using that as an example to show that the world has changed and the people are changing and hence why we've seen the great resignation all that kind of things. So if there's not always a data metrics to be able to fall back on, how can you help leaders to be like? You still need to be able to look and understand your people, so you can lead them better.
0: That's a good question. I mean, d- have the data is obviously the easiest. <laughs> Data's like, going to tell you a story, and you get insights to things that you wouldn't be able to see because it's it's kind of the data, the, the data and the the activities and what's going on is hidden away. So, data first. But if you don't have access to that, I think experimenting with stuff. And experimenting with stuff and leaders leads to lead by example. One of the things that we did at Farfetch, that our leaders did at Farfetch sort of earlier on in the pandemic, they were all recording short videos of themselves saying, here's what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm going for a walk in the park in the middle of the day because nature is something that makes me feel good and there'll be someone else doing other things. And they would film themselves and this kind of connects back to the role modeling, authenticity, vulnerability, et cetera. And showing it's okay to do these things and that for different people, different things are going to be the things that are going to help them. So just showing it's okay that yeah, you can meditate in the middle of the day or you can go for a run or fold your washing, whatever it is that does it for you, it's okay just to figure out, what you know, just try different things. I think it has to be for a lot of us, we have to do some experiments, right? We don't necessarily know what's going to help us until I – had my moment and realized actually, do you know what it's the exercise? I was trying different things. I tried yoga. Yoga's not for me. I figured that out. I did an experiment. It's not for me. It's fine. I need cardio and I need a lot of sweat. And like, that's what I need. But I did some experiments to figure it out. And I think showing that, you know, from having people role model that is, is a good way of doing it.
1: There's a thing around seeing those who are just leading you be those examples but also be human and just be open and vulnerable but like you know what? i've i've tried this and it hasn't worked out i've tried this and it's brilliant you can try and see what it is or actually bring your own ideas to the table just let me know what it is but at least they see you modeling which is not always something that we we tend to see a lot And you get told this is what you need to do but then you see the examples you're like oh but you're doing something something different why would i want to follow you i want to listen to that
0: yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's so important for leaders to be human and authentic and enrol in a that kind of stuff because the reality is we are all different. Our brains are all wired well differently. We've all had different life experience. We're all processing each day differently and there is not one size fits all. We have to figure this stuff out, but we have to see that it's okay to try and figure stuff out.
1: Do you tend to take time out to reflect on your journey, on your learnings? Or are you someone who's always on the goal just moving forward?
0: So the answer I should say is, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> because I know from a neuroscience perspective how important it is for learning, and we do a lot of reflecting exercises in some of the development programs we work on. Am yeah. I as good at practicing what I preach in this space? Probably not as much as I should do, but I think I do do it in other ways, and I would say my points of reflection and thinking Uh, I'm not sitting at my desk going, right, I'm now going to reflect on stuff. I do it when I'm horse riding on a Saturday, when I'm going for my runs. And that's when for me, when I'm away from, I guess, what I would call my workspace, like set up here. The reflection for me happens in those moments rather than it being a, a structured thing, right, I'm gonna sit and reflect.
1: That's see, that's that's the human. That's the reality of it. <laughs> that's the human side of it. Trust me, it looks different for all of us though.
0: Exactly. Okay. But it is important to reflect. I think I do think it is one of the things and you know, when you're in a fast growth company and there's so much going on. It is a hard thing to carve out dedicated time for because there's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But it is so important. You know, one of the things I do with my team, we do a every six months. Actually, this is an example where I do do this in a structured way. Every six months, we hold a reflect session as a team and we look back at everything we've achieved in the last six months and we celebrate it. We talk about what we've learned. So I do do it. I just forgot I've forgotten that we do do it that way. We do. So we've got another, we've got one coming up in beginning of December to reflect on the, the previous six months. And it's an opportunity to celebrate the hard work that people have been doing because it's very easy to just constantly chase, 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 chase.
1: I do, do it. I do do it. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's like i you know. I'll give you that time to, to reflect on yeah.
0: it. I do it twice a year. I guess it's more than none, but uh, yeah.
1: Do you find it easy to celebrate your accomplishments?
0: No, no one does though. I am better at acknowledging them now because I've learned over time it's important to, but it's a, I think it's a hard thing for all of us to go, Hey, look at me, I did this thing and I'm not clever. I still find that difficult as I think we all do, but what, and again, this is something I spend quite a bit of time with my team members on. It's like, it's not bragging. If it's fact, please tell me what you've done. Like, oh, you know, but I, doesn't, I don't want it to sound like I'm bragging. It's like, just tell me the fact. I delivered this thing and here was the feedback. You're not putting your own judgment on it. So that's something that I tried to do as well as just, you know, and again, when, you know, it's part of being in a big company, you have performance review cycles and you have to, to progress. You have to demonstrate what you've delivered. But if you do it in a way of, here's the thing I delivered, here was the impact. It's not based on me going, oh, my God, I'm so amazing. It's just that was the thing I did, and that was the thing that people said about the thing that I did. And then it's their fact. It's not me kind of making my own judgment. So that's something that I just think about. Not bragging if it's fact. Just share the facts, and other people can make their judgments on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: goes back to the data again. <laughs>
0: yes, <exactly. laughs> you can say, I did this thing, it impacted this many people. Here's the impact. You know, data is very helpful for sure.
1: And it cuts me got thinking around feedback. Mm. Are there good examples that you have of how you have received good feedback or bad feedback?
0: Again, just to, one of the things that we learned at Google, we had the saying that feedback was a gift. And if you imagine being given a gift, sometimes we like the gift, sometimes we don't like the gift, but we will say thank you for the gift. Right, you're gracious, and you say thank you, and, and then you can decide what you want to do with that information afterwards. So accept it like a gift. Then you can process it. If you think there's something to take from it, take it. If you think actually maybe that I'm, I'm not going to take that piece of feedback, but I'm not going to action it, it's fine. You can park it. But you should always be gracious and saying thank you for sharing your feedback. And you know, one of the things that we've been doing a lot of far is teaching people. A model to use for providing feedback, you know, encouraging people to accept it graciously. But also, we do a lot of work around a feed forward, which is a slightly less emotionally charged way of, I think, helping people grow and develop. So feedback, you should only be giving it if you want people to grow and develop. If you're giving feedback because you have some other ulterior motive, then probably best to zip it if you want them to feel bad or you want them to feel something that's not positive, not a growth related thing, then keep it to yourself. But feed forward, I don't know, are you familiar with feed forward? It's not a judgment on or an assessment of past behavior. It's more about collecting suggestions and recommendations for something that's coming in the future. So, for example, let's say that I – at some point in my I've never hosted a podcast, but let's say maybe that's something I want to do at some point in, in the future, what I could come to you and say, Hey, can I could you give me some feed forward? Like you host podcasts. Can you give me some feed forward? Like what's some suggestions you would have for me if I'm about to embark on this? you give me your recommendations. You're not making a judgment on actually hey, Kim, last time I saw you and when you showed up, you behave like this or that. And I don't think you should do that when you do your podcast. It's more just forward looking, not judgment on me, but about your more advice and recommendations for how – what what being a good podcast host looks like. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So you're tapping into experience with someone else to help exactly. you with something like that. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it's less of a, hey, you know, if I said to you, hey, can you give me some feedback on this? And you said, well, you said this and this was the impact, et cetera. So when you're doing your podcast, don't do that, but maybe you should do more of that. You're – talking about the experience you have with me rather than just saying, what well, I've learned to be really engaging in a podcast is X, Y, and Z. And then I can take that and kind of apply it as, as useful learning. Oh, I like
1: that, actually. That's, um, yeah, that's a good way of approaching that. And I guess it's also a good way of helping people to learn without the personal direct
0: exactly. um,
1: approach that I can, feedback can, can tend to have where you lose some emotional bruises. Yeah. So if you're wasting around, Let's say the gracious and, and the good and bad. There are times in that bad you're like, mm, thank you. But <laughs> inside it's, it's, it's hurting and it's burning.
0: Yeah, it's like, if it, it, again, it just put, it spins our brain into a threat state. If I say, mm. hey, would you mind if I give you some feedback? Your brain's like, uh-oh, what's going on? You immediately go into the threat state. Whereas if you have a conversation less about what's happened, more about what good look would look like in the future, not a judgment. It's a brain-friendly way of growth and development. What's next for you?
1: Obviously, you're still at Farfetch. I'm not saying you're leaving Farfetch. I'm just thinking with everything that you've accomplished and you're still going to go ahead and do, when you think about the future and what you would like to see happen and what you'd like to bring more into the world, it's just curious what that is. Mm,
0: yeah. I think something I am very passionate about, and so I'm doing an external course at the moment to become a, a certified coach, through the Neuroleadership Institute and I do a lot of strengths coaching internally for our employees and our leaders at Farfetch. So I'm really passionate about helping people to discover their strengths and their passions. That's something that brings me a lot of joy. So I definitely see, I hope to see more of that in my future. For me, I've never been one of these people who says, in five years' time, I want to be doing this, so I want to be doing that. I ne- I've never had a five-year plan. I used to pretend I did in the early stages of my career because it felt like you're supposed to and you just would make something up. I don't have a five-year plan. What I do have is curiosity, passion for learning, doing new and interesting things. And my philosophy is kind of like if you go all in and – be open and be kind and be curious and work hard. interesting things come your way so that's kind of always been my philosophy at least during the you know for the last 15 16 years so I'll keep doing that the other thing hopefully I'll have a horse in my life one day again that dream has. I mean I'm not going to go to the Olympics anymore that probably part that one but from a personal perspective one day that's a a passion I would love to pick back up again but Doing new things, doing things where you feel like you're, you're bringing value to other people and helping them see their greatness is, is yeah, I'm very close to
1: my heart. You still go horse riding every week?
0: I go every week, yeah, but I don't own my own horse and I don't ride every single day. So, you know, we've got some capacity to... <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be the dream. Riding every day, on your own horse. Okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for now, once a week will keep me, we will we'll tie me over that at some point I'd like to see more of it
1: but. and when you talk about what you're working on around coaching and developing people on that next level is absolutely amazing I know you know some of the work that you do and I know the impact you've had on the people in your organisation as well so I know it's definitely valued to see you growing more and more into that area it's it's really really good when you talk about strengths what would you say are your top three strengths well, yeah, the spark- like
0: I do have my strength report here.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> what I did earlier.
0: Well, yeah, I know, because we have this as a tool that we use. And, you know, and it makes it very easy because I think it's a hard thing for going back to this piece about saying, we're oh, really great at this and that. But there is a tool through Gallup, Bridgeton, and I can tell you my top three strengths. My number one strength, according to this tool, is positivity and looking for the positive spin on things helping people to feel good about what's going on for them. Then my second one is strategic thinking, which is all around being able to spot different patterns and themes and looking for connections and doing experiments, etc., to try and figure out uh, a best approach forward. And then the third one is this strength called Maximizer, which is about promoting... Or, or striving for personal excellence and helping a group to be at their best. So taking things that are maybe average and polishing them and making them into things that are exceptional and world-class. So kind of this passion for quality and making the most out of situations or um, of the options that you've got ahead of you. So that's my top three strengths.
1: Were you surprised by that? Or were they aligned to what you thought when you think about who you were?
0: Uh, No. Not really, but I don't think you would necessarily, until you kind of go through this tool. you would necessarily go, "Oh, well, positivity, is that a strength? Is that not just, I don't know. I think having words for it is helpful, but when you read the descriptions, you're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that is how I feel like that is aligned with how I believe or how I show up. And, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, you should do it.
1: Yeah, I did one, I my where it is now, but it was very, very long time ago. I matched a new one just to see to see what shows up. But listen to your top three. And when I think back over your your career and what you're doing now, what you say you want to do next. I was like, yeah, I can see the (laughs) the synergies. I can see them all kind of flowing really, really well together. So I was like, that's that's very right. right.
0: I mean, you wonder, like, when you, because I do a lot of these with people in, in the business, and it's like people's strengths are aligned to the work they're doing. It's like, it's just a really interesting conversation to have. It's like, are you doing the work that you're doing because of the strengths that you have? Or... Have you learned the power of these strengths because of the work you're doing? And it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation to dig into.
1: I guess the last question would be, how do you define leadership?
0: That's a good question. I think leadership is having clarity of vision and inspiring followership and helping people to be at their best and, and work towards a shared goal. It's a very collaborative, human-centric thing for me. It's not about telling other people what to do. It's about inspiring and and motivating them and, and helping them see what they're great at so that you can work together and maximise the outcome of the thing that you're trying to achieve as a group.
1: Kim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, really loved, loved this conversation and um, loved this happening here.
0: Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Nice way to start my day. <laughs>
1: and for me too, actually, it really is. It definitely got me thinking about a number of different things. Feed forward is one that I want to look more, more, more into. Actually,
0: simple, but powerful.
1: That's what you want. That's what you want. Simple framework that you can utilize in the day-to-day lives that makes an impact. That works really well for me.
0: Yeah.
1: This is everyday leadership, and I'll see you next week.